0: Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tenevsky and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kate Schechter, the President and CEO of World Neighbors. World Neighbors focuses on training and educating communities to find lasting solutions to the challenges they face, such as hunger, poverty, and disease. It does this through four primary programs: sustainable agriculture and rural livelihoods, community-based natural resource management, community and reproductive health, and gender equity. Currently, around 500,000 people benefit from World Neighbors programs in 13 countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, and I think you'll enjoy hearing about the impact it's making. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kate Schechter, the president and CEO of World Neighbors. Kate, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And to start, could you tell us about yourself, your background,
1: and how you came to World Neighbors? Well, I, I actually um, have a kind of an odd background for this job, but all of my previous experience has really helped to to help me in the in the job. I got a PhD in political science at Columbia University, and I actually had spent time as a child in the Soviet Union. My father was a journalist for Time Magazine, so I was very focused on uh, the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and I taught political science at the university of michigan for about four years and then decided to get into international development uh partly because the soviet union collapsed and yes i am that old (laughs) i was just on the cusp of all of that um and so i um I, i actually got a job at the world bank and i started to travel to the former soviet countries primarily to russia and ukraine and worked on social safety net issues. My dissertation was on the Soviet healthcare system and I was really interested in this issue of of equity and accessibility and quality for all in healthcare actually long before it became a sort of political issue in the United States. It's a little bit of a struggle when I was in graduate school because I kept saying this is very political. And my professors were like, really? What's the politics here? Maybe you should be in medical school. And I'm like, no, no, no. Healthcare is a political issue. Luckily, a lot of other people came to see it that way eventually. Um, Not that we've resolved that problem yet, but hopefully we will one day. Um, So I, I got involved at the World Bank in these social safety issues and really started to question the way that international development was being uh, applied overseas. And then I got a job. I left the World Bank and went to an organization called the American International Health Alliance that did partnerships between the United uh, Medical personnel in the United States and their peers, their counterparts in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Europe. And eventually that group, AIHA, uh, got a big contract to work in Africa um, with the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief funding that was for HIV AIDS. And those, I worked there for 14 years. It was a really great experience. I speak Russian, so I got to use my Russian when I went to Russian speaking countries. But it also helped me to really analyze the pros and cons of how we do international uh, development and how we help people overseas. And I started to write about it and really analyze it. And then I got recruited for this very strange position, mostly strange because it was in Oklahoma. I was working in Washington, D.C., and I got this letter saying that they were recruiting for a CEO in Oklahoma. And I decided to apply and explain that I wouldn't necessarily move to Oklahoma, but I would definitely commute. And the more I read about world neighbors, the more I started to think, Oh, my gosh, they are really applying a lot of the lessons that we have learned over the last 50 or 60 years um, to the way that that we approach development. And I honestly I took the job, even though it, it was you know not necessarily the easiest thing to commute to Oklahoma because of my belief that this is the right way to do development. And, and every day that I've been on this job, and it's almost eight years now, I believe that we are really, really having an incredible impact and that we are uh, really preserving the dignity of the people that we work with, that we are not creating dependency, um, many of the issues that are problematic um, in the way that many people do development work. Not just in the United States, you know, the sort of wealthier nations trying to help poorer nations.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that's a really interesting issue and something to differentiate between helping and actually hurting. And we'll definitely talk more about that soon. But could you share what World
1: Neighbors' philosophy and mission is? So, our mission is to inspire people and strengthen communities to find lasting solutions to hunger, poverty, and disease, and to promote a healthy environment we've tried to encapsulate in one sentence a very, actually, I mean, a very complex methodology. Um, on the surface world neighbors may seem kind of simple, but the, the more you work in the field and the more you get out there in the field, the more you realize that it is, it's a very challenging duty to try to do what you just said, do more help than harm. And that, uh, you know the funding is, is erratic. It's not something where you're going to always have the same amount of money coming in to help people. And yet you're making a commitment to help people for a long time. So in that mission, we're saying that we respect the dignity of every person that we're working with. We want people to figure out how to help themselves, not to be the ones who tell them what we think the answer is. We are taking a holistic approach to development in the sense that we are not just addressing uh, health or uh, water issues or agricultural issues. We believe that in order for people to live better, they have to address all the issues that are, are holding them back. And then not encapsulated so well in the mission statement because it's very hard to say it all at once I'm side, sure um, is that we stay for a long time we understand that change happens slowly that people need to really own that change and it has to be them that they have to be the drivers of it and so uh, we don't We don't just come in for a year or two, do a lot of training and a lot of working with people and then leave. No, we come in, we do a lot of training, a lot of working with people, and we stay for eight to 10 years until we feel that people are really, really able to make those kinds of changes on their own. In many cases, we're seeing people uh, start to teach their neighbors, their neighboring communities, and that's a sign to us that they're on their way Many times they'll say, you know, we think we're okay now. We can do it. And that's, of course, best thing you can possibly hear. Um and and the other thing that we've started to do more of that's also not encapsulated in the mission statement is to try to do contiguous uh, development. So instead of starting in one place and then starting in another place far away, in the maybe in the same country but you know hundreds of miles away, we're trying to spread the change uh, contiguously or organically from one community to the next.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because. Obviously, you're trying to make a structural difference as opposed to surface level. And I'm sure that it's important that you stay in these places and you do really care about these communities to do so.
1: I mean, the other thing is that we don't have a big staff. And in relation to a lot of other organizations, we actually are very small in terms of our budget. We're not trying to raise millions and millions of dollars and we're also trying to obviously use every dollar as as most efficiently and as carefully as we can and we 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 don't have a huge staff we have pushed almost all of our overhead overseas. So we have offices in many of the countries where we work. We have a very small office in Oklahoma. It's, a, it's an office of four people and we don't anticipate making it too much bigger. It's really working well with this very strong, small team in the States and making sure that as many of the dollars actually go to the programs as possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And can you talk about the difference between development work and relief, and especially its relevance to world neighbors?
1: Oh, that's, that's such a good question, and one that I think is hard to be cut and dry about. Mm. You, you, I'd like to say, well, we're a sustainable development organization. You know, we don't. We try not to go into conflict regions. We try to. Uh, do things that are going to be long-term sustainable development. That sounds great. Reality is very different. Um, You could go into a country that's very peaceful and everything seems fine, and then there's a terrible natural disaster, and all of a sudden you're in a crisis situation, or the political situation deteriorates, and all of a sudden you find yourself dealing with crises for your staff and also for your communities. When I first started at World Neighbors, I really didn't know very much about Africa. I was so focused most of my career on the former Soviet Union. I'd never been to Africa before, and within within weeks, there was a coup d'état in Burkina Faso, and people were asking what they should do. And I just said, you know, lock your doors and and stay out of stay out of the streets and hope that it all passes. And so, you know, that was a real. I mean, there were several terrible things that happened in all, all the countries where we were something happens most, you know, every week, practically, there's some kind of a crisis. Right now, we have a terrible situation in Haiti, the country is really, really deteriorating. And we have some incredibly successful programs there. And we have staff there still. So we try to, uh, you know, be very careful and and to support them. So so the difference is that one is relief work is really dealing with the urgent care that needs to happen on the ground immediately and making sure that people's lives are saved and dealing with injured people, getting people into shelter, etc. We tend to avoid, you know, really, really extreme situations like that because we are looking to have long-term sustainable development. So we focus on other types of issues, but we have learned that you can't just, you know, there's no sort of wall between the two. And so more and more we are working on what's called issues where you're trying to mitigate for disasters that you know will happen. So, yeah. uh, um, so planning ahead and uh, working with communities to have plans and st- in place for uh, when a disaster will strike. Um, and in Indonesia, we have been very fortunate to get USAID funding to do work in villages to prepare for natural disasters, which, you know, Indonesia is a very, and, and Timor-Leste, where we also work, East Timor, uh, are, are countries that are island nations that are in the what they call the ring of fire. So they have, they're vulnerable to, you um, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, tsunamis, you know, the terrible earthquake, uh, tsunami that happened in Aceh was, uh, Indonesia was very, very badly hit. So we know that there will be more (laughs) natural disasters and how can we help these communities to prepare for that? And then the other, of course, uh, issue that is on everybody's minds right now is climate change and All of these communities are suffering through extreme weather events, such as long periods of drought or terrible flooding. And so working with the communities to figure out how can we mitigate the impacts of of climate change, prepare for climate change, which we know is coming, and, and help them to kind of plan ahead. So one of the really interesting things that's going on now around the world is rainfall predictions and it's not that different than the than the farmer's almanac where you know they used to have sort of schedules of when they thought rain would come that farmers could refer to Uh, but now there's more sophisticated ways of mapping out rainfall um, and figuring out some of these climate change phenomena such as el nino and how that will affect rain and then getting information from the farmers. So having the farmers measure rainfall and send it in to universities to analyze and create maps and predictions. And all this is really, I find, incredibly interesting, but also impressive that, uh, you know, we're getting to that place where we, we can help people to plan ahead for changes that are coming.
0: Yeah, I agree. And speaking more about that agricultural aspect of what you do, I know World Neighbors has programs that focus on agriculture, making it sustainable and rural livelihoods. So, what are some of the problems people are facing in developing countries in these areas, and how are your programs helping them?
1: Well, I think uh, a lot of it is known, and I've mentioned some of it. Uh, You have the issue of climate change. Um, and But there are also many other issues involved. Um, in many of the countries, the men in the families have gone off to make money either in you know, wealthier states, sort of like in Nepal, they go off to the Gulf states to get to to make money and send home. In Central America, we know a lot of them try to get to the United States and send home remittances. And so, a lot of a lot of the countries where we work, and a lot of the communities where we work, women are are the main farmers, and they. There are all kinds of issues involved in helping these women to make a living as farmers. We're teaching them new innovative ways to use seeds and to and to prepare um, seeds so that they are uh, that they're growing more faster. <laughs> um, and also uh, just helping them in terms of their own leadership skills. Many of the women are not literate. They, they were not able to go to school. They're often dependent on their children to, to help them with literacy issues. Uh, so we do a lot of work with basic literacy for these women farmers. And, and just creating that self-confidence that they can do it. Um, and we've seen um, a lot of, of really impressive um, impact that we've had. One of the things that I want to mention that I think is is not well known and that is a a kind of entry point for us in a lot of these communities is that people, we encourage people to save money and to use, the and then to create savings and loans within the communities because a lot of these very rural communities don't have access to banks. Yeah. And we also want to help them avoid what was one of the problems with microfinancing so even though it was micro it was small loans, people still fell into debt with banks and sometimes uh, you know were defaulting on their loans so this other methodology, which is called savings and credit, is small groups of people working together, saving money together and then loaning to each other um and and that way if one of the community members can't pay back their loan say they get sick or something happens and they're just not able to to make the money back the community can help them to figure out a mechanism for eventually paying back the group and at first i thought okay that's lovely but you know if you're saving 50 cents a week how are they ever going to have enough capital to really make a difference I have been really surprised at how much money people save. <laughs> I was in the, in the mountains of, of Timor-Leste, of East Timor, rocky, really, really kind of tough terrain, very difficult to grow anything. Um, and the, actually, uh, the government had put in a road um, and that had allowed the, the farmers up in the mountains to bring their produce down to sell it. And this one of the community members got up in this uh, savings and credit group and said to me, we saved thirty six (laughs) thousand dollars. really okay that's pretty impressive up here in these rocky mountains um and you see, so they were they had saved a lot of money and were loaning it to each other and people were starting their own businesses it's not just agriculture sometimes people have little grocery stores they spend money sometimes just on their children's education or on health care needs but um We really do encourage there to be a balance of how they use the money so that they have some kind of revenue coming in at the same time that they're improving the lives of their whole families.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I know you mentioned before how you really support women, and I know gender inequality is a huge problem in many of these countries where World Neighbors operates and can lead to vulnerable groups being excluded from development opportunities. So can you just discuss a little bit more about how World Neighbors helps to address this?
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that is what we're encountering in almost every country where we work. We work right now in 13 countries around the world in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and in Haiti. We are uh, in the process of adding a 14th country, which is Malawi in Africa. And um, in all of those countries, women have. Not had much of a voice, as I mentioned. Many women uh, who are adults have not had an education, um, and they have been held back. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves many times um, trying to run a farm. We only—the other thing I forgot to mention is we only work in very rural areas. We we work in sort of. The last mile community. So um, we are trying to get to the people who haven't had any assistance from any other groups and, and sometimes not even from their own governments, because you know, in a place like Haiti, the government is has collapsed essentially, and so uh, people are really on their own in, in terms of survival. And um, what, what you find is that women are eager to, to learn. They are, uh, they're, they're eager to figure out ways to uh, learn about their own health Um, and that uh, there, there is a a kind of camaraderie that you see amongst the women when they realize that we're there to help them help themselves and that there's not going to be this kind of you know, hierarchy of some people get assistance and others don't, but no, 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 this is going to be a community effort. Um, And also what you put into it, you know, how much you can um, learn and how much you, to some degree, you have to take some risks in starting a business um, will pay off. Um, One of the things that I have encountered is that the men initially do not want their women involved in this kind of activity. It's threatening to them um, in many of these communities. And they're very traditional communities where women have tended to be isolated in their homes. And all of a sudden we're saying, oh, you, you know, the, you got to come to the group, you got to put in your 50 cents a week or whatever it is that you're you're going to, you know, give. And the women don't have any money to give. They They're going to probably have to ask for that, even that minimal amount from their husbands. So, you know, there has been some resistance. But what happens is that they see that others are doing well, and that tends to uh, have a big influence on allowing their wives to go to these meetings. Um, I've heard some wonderful stories of, you know, people whose husbands were alcoholics and beat them. And then, you know, gradually, the women started to have just their own little kitchen garden. But the kitchen garden flourished, and they started to sell the vegetables. And before you knew it, the husband was like, okay, maybe I'll help you with this. You know? uh, maybe this is a good idea. So it's it's not, I mean, as I said earlier, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, these are lo- deeply entrenched uh, points of view, and it takes time for people to change. And we certainly are not the ones to tell them to change, you know, it has to happen from within. Um, we can we can be catalysts, we can be facilitators, but ultimately, it has to happen within the community.
0: And I know, I think you addressed before the issue of health and World Neighbors also focuses on community and reproductive health.
1: And so, can you discuss how it does this? Yeah, I mean, health is a very complicated issue. You know, I worked for so many years in healthcare development, and um, it's, it's, it's tricky because on the one hand, we are not training doctors and we don't want to get into a situation where nurses and we don't want to get into a situation where we are uh, world neighbors is paying anybody's salary. We want there to be a, a mechanism for the state or uh, if it's a private hospital for them to be making money on their own. So we are facilitators. We are trying to make sure that if there is public health care available, that these these very, very remote isolated communities have access to the health care. We're trying to make sure that we are connecting the isolated communities with the with the healthcare that is already there in the country. A good example is in Africa, um, primarily in East Africa where we work, we have been key facilitators in helping get all this funding from PEPFAR, from President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which, you know, my former organization um, received a lot of funding from them. So they they have drugs for people who have HIV AIDS. They have uh, community healthcare care um, workers who want to go out and help people. But many times they don't know where these people who have HIV AIDS are. They're so isolated and so remote. So we work to connect the two. And I've been in villages where uh, people were dying. They just they didn't have access to um, antiretroviral drugs. They just they didn't even know that they existed. And we were able to just be the link between the drugs and the people, um, and you know, and the healthcare workers, um, and now these these farmers are are very doing really really well, um, and a lot of the stigma has been um, decreased because people with HIV/AIDS are now functioning and, and basically have a chronic illness, um, so it's it's more about information spreading information. Um, Getting linking healthcare workers with the people who need them. We do a lot of mobile clinics, uh, getting doctors and nurses out to communities to address issues. And then if they find, you know, they do screenings, if they find that there's a serious problem, they can refer the person to a hospital or or a more sophisticated clinic. So we found we found a very important niche. We're not doctors, we're not nurses, but we are making sure that people have access to healthcare.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important. And I know another topic I really want to address was how World Neighbors recognizes the interdependence of community well-being and ecosystem health. So can you discuss how World Neighbors' community-based natural resource management program helps those who depend on the land to provide food for their families?
1: Sure. So there's a lot of tension right now about how do we feed everyone, especially, um, you know, with COP26 going on and then with um, with the pandemic having really, unfortunately, reversed a lot of the gains that we've made in terms of development work. Um, there's a lot of concern I, I don't know if you heard but there's this whole argument going on with Elon Musk about you know how how if he was to just give a certain amount of money you could feed everybody you know um and so one of the big tensions is between sort of massive agricultural uh corporations versus small-scale farmers and um And that's a, that's a tension that's there. I don't have any great solution for that, but we definitely are promoting small scale farmers. We're promoting um, organic agriculture. We believe that that is, that is a solution to, um, you know, if we are able to support small scale uh, organic agriculture, we believe that is more sustainable over the long term. And I think it's been proven over and over again that it is more sustainable. So um, we are in the, you know, we're in the business of looking at ways to uh, preserve the environment, uh, be good to the environment. So it will be good to people growing multi-cropping so that you don't leach all the soil, figuring out ways to prevent problematic chemicals from getting into the soil, and and then into your food. Um, In many of these countries, there's not a lot of arable land. So figuring out ways to be in harmony with forests and doing what we call agroforestry, um, and, and preventing people from slashing and burning down whole forests but being in harmony with the forest. So growing in one place and then maybe letting that place grow back and moving to another place.
0: I think that's great and a little bit different, but something I was wondering is, are there any specific personal experiences that you can discuss about how World Neighbors has positively impacted either a person or a community at large?
1: I have this one story that happened very early on for me with World Neighbors. It was my first trip to the field. Um, I had never been, well, I had never been to any of the 13 countries. i traveled my whole life. My father was a journalist and we went all over the place. And I actually spent seven years of my childhood in Asia, but I had never been to some of the countries where we work. And my first trip was to Nepal. And I really now realize how little I knew about Nepal. And um, in one of the first meetings, we were in a group of with women. They all were wearing these beautiful red saris, and they were a savings and credit group. And they were telling me about their experience with World Neighbors, raising money, and then starting their own businesses. And each one got up and was telling this great, you know, testimony of how how thing, how their lives had changed. And this one woman got up and she said, <clears throat> you know, I am an untouchable. I'm a Dalit. And before world neighbors, people wouldn't come near me. They wouldn't come near my children. I was poor and, and really had no future. And then through this savings and credit group, I've been able to start my own farm. I've raised enough money to send my children to university in Nepal, in, in Kathmandu. And I'm I'm just doing so well. So... Afterwards, I went up to her in a very American way without thinking. I touched her. I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was so powerful. Well, she kind of grabbed my hand, looked at me like, I can't believe you're touching. And she gave me a big hug. And then she said, can we take a picture together of of, of us having each other? You You know, it was just one of those aha moments where I thought, oh, my gosh you know, you, you don't even realize how painful it must be to be from a, a group, a group that is so persecuted and, and so uh, discriminated against. And that, I think, is another part of World Neighbors that's just been so powerful for me is to see the breakdown. Um, we have helped to create a federation of women in India, you know, India is Famous for the caste system, where um, there's something like five thousand women now. They're they're from every caste, from every religion, all working together for um, betterment of their communities on many different issues. And some of these women in the federation have started to run for office and now have positions of power within uh, Bihar where we work. So for me that may be the most important part of all the work is just this, uh, the breakdown in differences and and prejudices.
0: Yeah, I think just hearing sometimes a story about a single person can really just drive home. It's incredible what you're doing for so many people and on such a great scale. And so I am wondering how can those who best want to get involved do so?
1: Well, um, you can follow us on our, uh, our website. We're on Facebook. I've got some issues with right. Facebook. Everybody does, but we've stayed on for now. So um, you can you can find us on Facebook and also at our website, which is just uh, www.wn.org. And um, we we do sometimes have trips that we take where people can. They have to pay themselves to go to see the communities. But, um, you know, if somebody's really serious about it, I mean, there's small groups that I've taken. And we haven't gone in a long time, obviously, because of the pandemic. But I do hope to go again um, in the future. And uh, I think reading about what we've talked about today, some of these issues around development, I welcome anybody who who wants to, to email us. Um, there's an email address on the website, and I, I enjoy engaging with people in discussions about sort of pros and cons of development, and to to educate yourselves about, you know, what works, what doesn't, and uh, be global citizens. Figure out ways in which you can connect with other people around the world. We are global citizens whether we like it or not. So the more we educate ourselves, I think the better.
0: Yeah, and lastly is there anything you'd like to add about
1: world neighbors or really anything at all? Well, I think in this time of a lot of division and a lot of uh strife and and you know hardship, it's great to remember that there are things that are working well that we 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 do care about each other, and we do care about other people outside of the United States. You know, we've helped millions, of million. We estimate we've helped twenty eight million people over the last seventy years. So there, we are a ray of light in an otherwise sometimes difficult and and you know slightly depressing environment that we encounter. Um, and I, again, I encourage people to look at our website and to figure out ways in which they can engage in these kinds of issues.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing from you today. And you're clearly doing a lot of great work. So I appreciate it.
1: Oh, I really appreciate your interest, Brooke, and, and appreciate the chance to, to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>